Grace Family Baptist Church presents the 2010 Semper Reformanda Conference. Today's speaker is Paul Washer. His message is titled, The Gospel and Culture. Well, welcome. Can everyone hear? Are there any ladies that need to sit down so that men might, young men might have to get up and provide a seat for the ladies? Uh, not unless they need it. It just kind of gets in our way. Do you need it? I don't know if the people in the back need it. Oh, this is for? That's for recording. That's for Oh, okay. All right, now I've got it. Um, young men, if you see any ladies... Uh, that need a seat. Ladies, there's two seats here. Two over here. Has anyone seen my two boys? Ian and Evan? I was supposed to get them. They're in the Sunday school. Hold on, I've lost my children. My wife is going to kill me. Okay, I think they might be in the bathroom. Yes, please. Hey there. How are you doing? Uh, love your book, really. I mean, really? you're great. My, lo- my mom really loves you. Hey, after, after this service, why don't you just talk to me, okay? We'll come up. You're going right now? No, just go preach. Okay. Hey, brother. We sure will. Hey, afterwards, I'd like to talk to you, okay? I'll find your voice. Okay. Okay. Wow. I guess you can always make more of them. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tremendous blessing to be here, and I, I tell you, just wore out, wore out, just... Guess I'm getting old, but there is there's so much to do. There is so much to do. Especially you you youngsters out there. Please think of missions. Please think of preaching the gospel in hard places. Well, we found one of them. Good. But we're going to talk about preaching the gospel and missions. Do you realize how many billions of people do not have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you realize your responsibility in that? This is what, as Christians, we live for. The ends of the earth. Our Christianity has a wide breadth to it. It's high as the heavens. And it's to the ends of the earth. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever I talk about missions, I like to ask a few questions. 
particularly when I'm dealing with North Americans. Here are the questions. The first one. Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around the sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now, my question is this. And I'm going to use the singular, second person singular, you. Father, mom, Christian children. Here's the question. What part of your Christianity should be exported? And what part of it should be quarantined? What part of your Christianity would you honestly want someone else to have? That's a very important question. Let's just look. Do you have a gospel worth exporting or should it be quarantined? Do you realize that coming out of the United States of America, a gospel has gone out into the whole world that has infected the whole world? An easy believism that gets someone to jump through a few evangelical questions and if they answer yes to each one, they're pronounced saved. Evangelists from this country that travel abroad and they bring back news that 10,000 people got saved in their crusades. That's not true. I've been there after they've left. One Romanian brother told me one time, he said, if what all the American evangelists say is true about how many people in their crusades from my country have been saved, then I have to tell you this, Brother Paul, everyone in Romania has been saved four times. And that's true. What part of our gospel should be quarantined? What part should be exported? Another question. Do you have a devotional life worth exporting? Would you really want someone else to have your devotional life? Or should it be quarantined? Another question. Our personal godliness. Would you want your personal godliness to be given to another? Or would you rather have it quarantined with self? Here's another question. What is unique about our lifestyle? What is uniquely Christian about your lifestyle and mine that you would want to be exported, that you would want someone else to possess? How much of our lives is truly Christian? And how much of it is actually just a product of culture? I was at a uh, conference last summer of a bunch of people from inner cities, Philly, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles. And this girl walked up to me and she handed me a button. She said, Brother Paul, this is for you. And I looked down at the button and it said, Jesus saves. And then later on in the hotel room, I was looking in the mirror and I saw it again, saw something else and I looked at it and it said, Jesus saves from the American dream. To follow Jesus, you're going to have to let go 
of the American dream. What do we have in our marriage that is worth exporting? Would you even want your own worst enemy to have your marriage? What is it about our marriage that should be exported? What is it about our families that we would honestly want to go to the ends of the earth? And what is it about our church should we want to export? Or should it be quarantined? You see, missions is not about sending missionaries. Missions is about sending God's truth through missionaries. I am sorry to say that of all the aspects of modern day Christianity, the most atheological has become missions. Do you realize that? More concerned with contextualization, sensitivity to culture, and so many things. This is what today is directing missions. It is driven by psychology. It is driven by anthropology. It is driven by sociology. Just recently in Indonesia, I walked up to a Western missionary and I said, let me ask you a question. When someone is actually converted in this culture, how do you deal with them? And he looked at me and he said, well, first of all, you're going to have to drop some of your Western baggage. I said, young man, I was a missionary for years in South America. I'm aware that I must drop my Western baggage. There's only one problem. Conversion is not Western baggage. It is New Testament. It is Old Testament. Now, let me repeat my question. What do you do when someone is actually converted? We have the greatest of need to do missions. But it must be theologically correct missions. What we export must be truth. Our finest theologians and our finest expositors must be missionaries. When someone goes out to plant a church, it may be the first church planted among that people group. Then all the other churches are going to draw its light from that church. It's going to be something of a mother to the rest of the churches in the area. It must be theologically correct. It must have something to export rather than something to be quarantined. I am absolutely amazed and appalled at what is being taught by missionaries around the world. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some missionaries from the West that are worth their weight in gold. They believe the Scriptures. They teach the Scriptures. But I am coming into contact with countless movements of missionaries and missionary organizations, especially in the Muslim world, that is no longer preaching the Gospel at all. I just recently met a Christian in Indonesia who was told by his missionary, when you tell someone you're a Christian, you tell them you're a Christian and a Muslim because you do not have to stop being a Muslim to be a Christian. These are evangelical 
missionary organizations. Teaching people to pray in the name of Jesus because in the Muslim faith, Jesus is the healer. Teaching them about the prophet Jesus. Teaching them all sorts of things, but not teaching them the scandal of the gospel that says Jesus is the Savior with a definite article, not an indefinite one. You see, here's what you and I should understand. If we would just change one tiny definite article to an indefinite article in our Christian faith, we would all be on the Oprah Winfrey show tomorrow. The world would love us if we would just say that Jesus is a Savior. But that's not what we believe. We do not believe that Jesus is a Savior. We believe He is the Savior to the exclusion of all other would-be saviors. Now, this is about Christianity and culture. I would really love to talk about missions, but I've got some things here that I have written about Christianity and culture. And although you've probably never seen me do this, I'm going to do something of a manuscript because I want to be very precise in my language here today about what we need to understand about the gospel and culture. The gospel and culture. And what it really comes down to is the thing I have just said. We proclaim not a Savior, but the Savior. And that is the scandal of our faith. If we would just release that one tenant, the world would be our friend. But if we release that one tenant, we are no longer Christian. So I'm going to begin. I'm going to read and make some comments. I want you to understand this is very, very important for our age. Paul's flesh had every reason to be ashamed of the gospel he preached because it contradicted absolutely everything that was held to be true and sacred among his contemporaries. To the Jew, the gospel was the worst sort of blasphemy. Do you understand that? Because it claimed that the Nazarene who died accursed on Calvary was the Messiah. To the Greeks, it was the worst sort of absurdity because it claimed that the Jewish Messiah was God in the flesh. Thus, Paul knew that whenever he opened his mouth to speak the gospel, he would be utterly rejected and ridiculed to scorn unless the Holy Spirit intervened and moved upon the hearts and minds of the hearers. In our day, the primitive gospel is no less offensive, for it still contradicts every tenet or ism of our society. The impossibility of anyone believing the gospel is what you must understand. Apart from a supernatural work of God, the only thing the gospel will generate in the mind of fallen man is hatred. Let's go on. We live in an age of relativism, a belief system based upon the absolute certainty that there are no absolutes. We hypocritically applaud men for seeking the truth, but call for the public execution of anyone arrogant enough to believe he has found it. Remember one time giving a lecture at the University of Garcilaso in Lima, Peru. 
And I stood before all the university and I cried out, Soy un buscador de la verdad. I am a seeker of the truth. And they all stood up and applauded me. And then I said, Y he encontrado la verdad en la persona de Jesucristo. And I have found the truth in the person of Jesus Christ. And the same people that applauded sat down, booed, and hissed. I'm reminded of the, the, um, the Spanish writer and philosopher from Spain, the philosopher Unamuno, who wrote a book one time called La Vida es un Sueño, Life is a Dream. And what he basically said in that book was this, the greatest, most noble thing that you could ever do is seek the truth. And the most horrendous, absurd, and arrogant thing you could ever do is say that you found it. Men want to be seekers of the truth because there's nobility in it. But they don't want to find the truth because then they will have to submit to it. And that's what men do not want to do. We live in a self-imposed dark age for the reasons for which is clear. Natural man is a fallen creature, morally corrupt and hell-bent on autonomy. He hates God because he is righteous and he hates his laws because they censor and restrict his evil. He hates the truth because it exposes him for what he is and troubles what still remains of his conscience. Therefore, fallen man seeks to push truth, especially the truth about God, as far from him as possible. He will go to any extent to suppress the truth, even to the point of pretending that no such thing exists. And if it does exist, it cannot be known or have any bearing on our lives. It is never the case of a hiding God, but it is always the case of a hiding man. The problem is not the intellect, but the will. Like a man who hides his head in the sand to avoid a charging rhino, modern man denies the truth of a righteous God and moral absolutes in hopes of quieting his conscience and putting out of his mind the judgment he knows to be inevitable. That's what you're dealing with when you're preaching the gospel. The Christian gospel is a scandal to man and his culture because it does the one thing he most wants to avoid. It awakens him from his self-imposed slumber to the reality of his fallenness and his rebellion and calls for him to reject autonomy or self-government and submit to God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. When you preach the gospel, you are calling for a complete paradigm shift. That man would deny almost every aspect of reality as they know it and come to accept the reality that is found in Jesus Christ. We live in an age of pluralism, a belief system that puts an end to truth by declaring everything to be true. When everything is true, nothing is true. Especially with regard to religion. It may be difficult for the contemporary Christian to comprehend. But the Christians living in the first few centuries of the faith were actually marked and persecuted as atheists. Did you know that? Christians died in the Roman Empire. The charge? Atheism. The culture surrounding them was immersed in theism. The world was filled with images of deities and religion was a booming business. Men not only tolerated one another's deities, but also swapped them and shared them. The entire religious world was going along just fine until the Christians showed up and declared that gods made with hands are no gods at all. They denied the Caesars the homage they demanded, refused to bend the knee to all other so-called gods, and they confessed Jesus Christ alone as Lord of all. 
and the entire world looked on such jaw-dropping arrogance and reacted with fury against the Christians' intolerable intolerance to tolerance. Isn't that what we're being accused of today? We are an intolerant people. We are bigoted. We are arrogant to the worst extreme because we believe that only we have the one true God. Now you give that up, you'll be a friend of many, but you will lose your soul. The same scenario abounds in our world today. Against all logic, we are told that all views regarding religion and morality are true. No matter how radically different and contradictory they may be, the most overwhelming aspect of all of this is that through the tireless efforts of the media and the academic world, this has quickly become the majority view. But we must understand that pluralism does not address the issue or cure the malady. It only anesthetizes the patient so that he no longer feels or thinks. The gospel is a scandal because it awakens man from his slumber and refuses to let him rest on such an illogical footing. It forces him to come to some conclusion. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. In a world that does not want to think, we as Christians demand that they think. In a world that does not want to take a stand, we demand that they take one and that they be exclusive about it. The Gospel is radically exclusive. Jesus is not a way, but the way, and all other ways are no way at all. If Christianity would only move one small step toward a more tolerant ecumenicalism and change the definite article the for the indefinite article ah, the scandal would be removed and world and Christianity could become friends. However, whenever this occurs, Christianity ceases to be Christianity. Christ is denied and the world is without a savior. You have a very popular preacher in your town who has done this very thing. Once you waver one step on whether or not Jesus Christ is the only way, you have denied him. We live in an age of humanism. Over the last several decades, man has fought to purge God from his conscience and culture. He has torn down every visible altar to the one true God and has erected monuments to himself with the zeal of a religious fanatic. That is true. He has managed to make himself the center, measure, and end of all things. He praises his inherent worth, demands homage to his self-esteem and promotes his own self-fulfillment or self-realization as the greatest good. He explains away his gnawing conscience as the remnants of an antiquated religion of guilt and he excuses himself from any responsibility for the moral chaos surrounding him by blaming society or at least that part of society that has not gained his enlightenment. Have you ever noticed that? All the crimes of individuals are blamed on individuals collectively. Individuals collectively. I don't know if you've studied classical logic, but that is a fallacy. Why is this society bad? Because of the individual. Why is the individual bad? 
because of his society. That's circular reasoning. That's why when you go to a paleontologist and you go to a, a, a geologist, you find something quite amazing. How do you know those rocks are that old? Well, because we have discovered dinosaurs from certain ages that tell us how old the rocks are. You go to the paleontologist and ask him, how do you know those dinosaurs are that old? Well, because they're found in rocks that are that old. Society is evil because man is evil. Any suggestion that man's conscience might be right in its testimony against him or that he might be responsible for the almost infinite variations of maladies in the world is unthinkable. For this reason, the gospel is a scandal to fallen men because it exposes their delusion about themselves and convicts them of their fallenness and guilt. This is the essential first work of the gospel. And this is why the world so loathes gospel preaching. It ruins man's party, reigns on his parade, exposes his make-believe and points out that the emperor has no clothes. You see, you must understand that when you preach the gospel, you are ruining everyone's day. Everyone's day. So many times when I've gone up to a group of men to witness to them, I find that everyone is so happy until I arrive. Because men hate the gospel. And apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, no one will be converted. And yet understand this, that we have the greatest promise of regeneration through the Holy Spirit when we accurately and scandalously preach the gospel. The scriptures recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block and foolishness to all men of every age and culture. However, to seek to remove the scandal from the message is to make void the cross of Christ and its saving power. We must understand that the gospel is not only scandalous, but that it is supposed to be. Through the foolishness of the gospel, God has ordained to destroy the wisdom of the wise, frustrate the intelligence of the greatest minds, and humble the pride of all men. To the end that no flesh may boast in his presence, but just as it is written, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. I have an ancient book. I don't know if any others have it. I know it's out of print and it's newspaper clippings and things from the time of Spurgeon. Spurgeon was lampooned. He was hated. He was mocked in the media. Whitfield, the things they drew and said about him were devastating. They were horrible. What you need to understand, understand is that men have always hated the gospel and they have always hated gospel preachers. We should not think that our culture is somehow different and so fragile that we must treat with men differently. That's not true. We must hit the hatred head on with the very thing that causes it. We must preach the gospel. Paul's gospel not only contradicted the religion, philosophy, and culture of the day, but it declared war on them. It refused truce or treaty with the world and would settle for nothing less than culture's absolute surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We would do well to follow Paul's example. 
We must be careful to shun every temptation to conform our gospel to the trends of the day or the desires of carnal men. We have no right to water down its offense or civilize its radical demands in order to make it more appealing to a fallen world or carnal church members. Our churches are filled with strategies to make them more seeker friendly by repackaging the gospel, removing the stumbling block and taking the edge off the blade so that we might be more acceptable to carnal men. We ought to be seeker friendly, but we ought to realize this. There is only one seeker and he is God. If we are striving to make our church and message accommodating, let us make them accommodating to him. If we are striving to build a church or ministry, let us build it upon a passion to glorify God and a desire not to offend His majesty to the wind with what the world thinks about us. We are not to seek the honors of earth, but the honor of heaven should be our desire. Someone came up to me one time and said, Don't you know that everyone in this room right now hates you? And I said, yes. They said, you are very, very brave. I said, no, I'm probably the most or the weakest man that you know. Well, then how is it that you can stand here while you know they hate you so much? Well, first of all, pity. Not for them, but for me. You see, when people hated Jesus Christ, they were always wrong. When people hate us, they're not always wrong. We have a perfect message, but we are imperfect messengers. So sometimes when we're persecuted, we ought to be. We all ought to realize that. How many things I have said that I wish I could retract? Well, But how do you stand here? He asked me. I said, look at it this way. Imagine that a tiny girl weighing only about 35 pounds, a skinny little thing, came up and challenged me to a fight. And you saw me cower down before her, a grown man afraid of a tiny little girl. What would you call me? Well, I would call you a coward, he said. And what would have to change in order for me to fight her? He said, well, you would have to become braver. I said, possibly, but there's another suggestion. What if her six foot eight, 400 pound father walked in the door with 3% body fat and full of muscles? And he said, you have to make a decision. You can fight her or you can fight me. Quickly, I put the gloves on and swing at the gal. (laughs) Now, have I become any braver? No. I'm as weak as I always was. It's just I have enough wisdom by the grace of God to pick my fights. You see, I have to make a choice. Fight men or fight God. Offend men or offend God. I am not brave. But I know of the two, which one I should call into a duel. And it is not God. That's why the weakest can become brave. They just need to know who to fight. 
Let's go on. I want to give you another chapter from a thing I've been working on. It's the unbelievable gospel. And this is what I want you to listen to. As we argued, Paul's flesh had every reason to be ashamed of the gospel that he preached because it contradicted absolutely everything that was held to be true and sacred among his contemporaries. You preach the same kind of gospel. Yet there is still another reason for fleshly shame. The gospel is an absolutely unbelievable message. A ludicrous word to the wise of this world. Now listen. He was born under questionable circumstances to a poor family in one of the most despised regions of the Roman Empire. And yet the gospel claims that he was the eternal son of God who was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a Jewish virgin. Go tell that to a Roman pagan. He was a carpenter by trade, an itinerant religious teacher with no official training, and yet the gospel claimed that he surpassed the combined wisdom of every Greek philosopher and Roman sage of antiquity. Go into Athens and share that. He was poor and had no place to lay his head, and yet the gospel claims that for three years he fed thousands by a word, healed every manner of illness among men, and even raised the dead. He was crucified outside of Jerusalem as a blasphemer and an enemy of the state, and yet the gospel claims that his death was the pivotal event in all of human history and the only means of salvation from sin and reconciliation to God. A Jewish carpenter dying as an enemy of the state for only a few people to see as they walk down the road is the pivotal point of all of human history. That's absurd. Unless it's true. He was placed in a borrowed tomb, and yet the gospel claims that on the third day he rose from the dead and presented himself to many of his followers. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Can you imagine? When they asked for proof, those philosophers surrounding Paul, and they asked for proof of his resurrection, he said, well, he resurrected and he showed himself to his followers. Did he show himself to anybody else? No. Did any of his enemies see him? No. Did he appear... Anywhere in public so that all the world could know? No. And you expect me to believe. Thus, the gospel claims that a poor Jewish carpenter who was rejected as a lunatic and a blasphemer by his own people and crucified by the state is now the Savior of the world, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and at His name every knee, including Caesar's, shall bow. You imagine Paul walking in Athens. Uh, I've got something to say. Hey, let the little Jew talk. Okay, go ahead. Uh, you're all wrong about everything. Reality itself, you are wrong. Oh, this is going to be good. Keep going. What is reality? God became flesh. If you ever want to know what not to tell a Greek philosopher 2,000 years ago, is that God became flesh. God be... What? 
God, but no, stop, stop. No, come on. I, I got to get some of my friends. He runs out to the market. Come in here. You got to hear this guy. I mean, you talk about a stand-up comedian. Okay, God became flesh. Go ahead. And he came down where? Oh, in Palestine. The most despised, enslaved, and impoverished place in the, in the empire, right? Yeah. What, he come down out of heaven? No, um, a virgin got pregnant. Now, I do not mean disrespect, but I want you to think about this. A virgin. A what? Okay, keep going. And what happened? Well, he was born. I guess she was quite queenly and lived in the palace of royalty and everything. Well, no, it was a, a carpenter. From, from where? Uh, Nazareth. Okay, so now we're not just talking about the most despised country. We're talking about the most despised place in the most despised country. God became flesh and was born of a Jewish virgin. Yes. And I guess all the Jews right now are in revolt because he's become king. No, they crucified him as a lunatic and a blasphemer. Of course, with the permission of the Roman state. Okay, so you follow a dead God. No, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And so I guess now everybody in Israel has seen him and they're all on the march. Uh, no, he only showed himself to a few people who were with him from the beginning. And anything else you've got to say? Uh, yes, one other thing. Caesar, and this would have got him killed, Caesar is not Lord. And who is? Jesus of Nazareth. And Caesar will bow his knee to him. Let me go on with the manuscript. Who could have ever believed such a message except by the power of God? The fact that Christianity survives up until today is that one of the greatest proofs of Christianity because it is an absolutely impossible, ludicrous message. There is no other explanation. The, go the Gospel would have never made its way out of Jerusalem, let alone beyond the Roman Empire, into every nation of the world except that God had ordained to work through it. The message would have died at its birth had it depended upon the organizational abilities, eloquence, and apologetical powers of its preachers. All the missionary strategies in the world and all the clever marketing schemes borrowed from Wall Street could have never advanced this foolish stumbling block of a message. This truth brings both encouragement and warning to those of us who endeavor to advance the faith in which we have believed. First, it is an encouragement to know that the simple faithful proclamation of the gospel will ensure its continued advance in the world. Secondly, it is a warning to us that we not succumb to the lie that we can advance the gospel through our brilliance, our eloquence, our clever strategies. Such things have no power to bring about the impossible conversion of men. We must cast ourselves with hopeful desperation upon the only biblical means of advancing the gospel, the bold and clear proclamation of a message about which we are not ashamed because it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes. We live in an unbelieving and a skeptical age. Our faith is ridiculed as a hopeless myth. And we are portrayed as narrow-minded bigots or weak-minded victims of a religious ruse. Such an attack often puts us on the defensive and we fight back and pro- to prove our position and relevancy with apologetics. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not against apologetics. But realize they have no place above the gospel. Although some forms of this discipline are quite helpful and necessary, we must realize that the power still lies in the proclamation of the gospel. We cannot convince a man to believe any more than we can raise the dead. As a matter of fact, it's the same thing. Such things are the work of God's Spirit. Men are brought to faith only through a supernatural working of God, and He has promised to work not through human wisdom or intellectual expertise, but through the preaching of Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. We must come to grips with the fact that our gospel is an unbelievable message. We should not expect anyone to give us a hearing. Again, we should not expect anyone to give us a hearing, let alone believe apart from a gracious and powerful working of God's Spirit. How very hopeless is all our preaching apart from God's power. How very dependent is the preacher upon God. All our evangelism is nothing more than a fool's errand because unless God moves upon the hearts of men. However, He has promised to do just that when we faithfully preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, The gospel that we preach is not only scandalous, it's not only unbelievable, but it is powerful. Extremely so. The Scriptures abound with demonstration of God's power. He creates the world with a word. He leads forth a starry host by number. He calls them all by name. And because of the greatness of His might and strength, the strength of His power, not one of them is missing. Not in all the universe. He separates the sea with a blast from His nostrils. The mountains melt like wax before Him. Before Him, the fire and water are poured upon a steep place. He plays with Leviathan as with a bird. Stretch forth your hand and touch that beast and you'll never forget it. But He plays with Leviathan as a man plays with a bird. He does according to His will in the hosts of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Such is the power of God and yet none of these demonstrations of divine strength can compare with the power that is revealed through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand me? He created the world ex nihilo out of nothing. It is a much more difficult task to recreate a man out of a corrupt and depraved lump. It's much easier to speak matter into existence than to take matter once corrupted and turn it into something good. One of the things that I wish you would understand, and I wish I would understand more deeply, Everything is impossible. I used to preach, teach 
Young preachers, you need, you need the power of God to preach. You need the power of God to tie your shoes. You need the power of God to breathe. What is man except one nostril full of breath at a time, the prophet said. It's not strength. It's not brilliance. It's God. It's God. Recognizing that the gospel is foolishness to men and a scandal to all, we can now begin to appreciate Paul's exaltation in its power. For this very reason, he could walk into Athens and declare a crucified Jew to be the God of the universe and the Savior of the world. He needed no persuasive argument or eloquence of speech. He knew that men would be converted if he endured in preaching boldly and clearly this singular message. Do you realize that? He preached that absurdity and men walked out of that place believing. Not laughing, but believing. Why? The sovereignty of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the same confidence that carried William Carey and countless other missionaries. Through the long years of drought before the harvest, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Men will be converted if it is preached. Men will be converted if it is preached. They will be converted. They will. I love the story about Spurgeon when a young man came up to him and said, People just are not converted through my preaching. And Spurgeon said, well, you don't believe someone should get converted every time you preach, do you? And he said, no. Spurgeon said, there's your problem. Young men, never, never, never be satisfied because you pulled off a good sermon. You're just a little whelp who understands nothing if you feel that way. If you're happy about yourself because the sermon went well. We preach to the conscience of men. We preach for transformation. We preach for conversions. And though we speak at times like a, like a man with a very limited vocabulary, in a very small mind, though we stumble backwards and forwards over our text, that doesn't concern us. Our concern is, was someone converted? Did someone come to Christ? Was a Christian transformed? The word power is translated from the Greek word dunamis, from which we derive the word dynamite. There is nothing subtle about this explosive agent. Whenever it is ignited, power is unleashed and the effects are evident to all. The same may be said of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true preaching of the gospel will create a ruckus. It will. I don't like doing conferences. I really don't. Preaching to like-minded people, I suppose that they have some benefit. Where you need to preach is in that place where when you stand forth and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are one or two possibilities. A revival or a riot. That's where you see God move among men 
a revival or a riot. The true preaching of the gospel will create a ruckus. Either men will run to it with violent passion or they will oppose it with equal violence. Either way, it will upset the world. On the same note, the genuine conversion of a man through the gospel is possibly the greatest demonstration of the power of God. It would be more likely, it would be more likely for a man to have dynamite explode in his lap and notice no effect of its power than for him to be saved and not be radically changed. We have such a wrong view of conversion. There is a great debate today, even among genuine, sincere, God-loving and Scripture-believing Christians with regard to Calvinism and Arminianism and five points this and four points here and three points back. That's not where the debate should be. The debate should be squarely upon the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration. That men are saved by the power of God. And the power of God transforms them into new creatures with new affections. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Hold all is new. Concerning the power of the Gospel, it is helpful to ask ourselves two questions. The first is, do we recognize the great power required in the saving of men. See, when you think that men are only sick, it doesn't take a whole lot to save them. But when you believe them to be dead, it takes the supernatural power of God. Salvation is not a light work. It is an impossibility for all but God. This is due to man's fallen and moral corruption. The Scriptures teach that the image of God in man has been seriously disfigured and moral corruption has polluted his entire being. As such, man has declared war on God and does everything in his power to block out his truth. The Scriptures teach that man cannot come to God because he will not come to God. And he will not come to God because he hates God and he hates God because his heart is evil. And the only way he's going to come to God is if his heart is transformed by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I think what I'm trying to tell you here is every time you preach the gospel, you're preaching the gospel in a hard place. Someone asked me one time, how do you preach the gospel to, the, to men in the Aguaduna tribe? I said, I don't preach the gospel to men in the Aguaduna tribe. I preach to men that happen to be the same everywhere. Whether they are a 65-year-old tenured Harvard scholar or a skid row bum, or a three-year-old child. The same message, the same God, and the same need of God's power. The walls of depravity around the heart of man are much stronger and thicker than those that surrounded Jericho. If men could not bring down the walls of that great city by their own power, they cannot bring down the depravity of their own heart. It must be the power of God. 
For this reason, it is often said that the power of God manifested in the salvation of one man far exceeds the power of God manifested in the very creation of the universe. God created the world ex nihilo out of nothing. However, when God saves a man, He does an exceedingly more difficult thing. It is far easier to create the good out of nothing than to recreate the good out of a mass of fallen corruption. At the risk of redundancy, we must iterate that we cannot truly appreciate the power of the gospel in the salvation of man until we comprehend something of the fallenness of man and the moral corruption of men. You see what humanism has done to us. Man's not that bad. So the gospel doesn't have to be that great a thing. But I assure you, my friend, that the only reason you do not make Hitler look like a choir boy is the grace of God. If you hate that, if you don't believe that, if you kick against that, if you seek to refute that truth, I would doubt whether you are Christian. Because that is thoroughly a Christian doctrine. And it is why the gospel must be so powerful. The more we sound the wretched depths of man's fallenness, the more we will soar in our understanding and appreciation of the power of the gospel. We also become acutely aware that the methodologies and marketing strategies, props and gimmicks on display in much of contemporary evangelicalism, all of them are vanity. If men are to be saved, they are to be saved by the supernatural power of God through the preaching of the gospel. A second question. Do we recognize the power to save is found uniquely in the gospel? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. It is not just the core or a part, but the whole. For it to have a great effect upon men, it only needs to be proclaimed. It does not require a revision to make it relevant, an adaptation to make it understood, or a defense to validate it. If we stand up and proclaim it, it will take care of itself. One preacher who has stripped himself of all his carnal weaponry and fights with only the proclamation of the gospel, the work of intercession, and the labor of sacrificial love will do more for the world than all the schemes and strategies of strategists and innovators combined. Do you remember our favorite quote from Spurgeon? Don't def- you, know, you don't need to defend the Bible any more than you need to defend a lion. Just let him out of the cage and he'll defend himself. That's the same way with Scripture. Preach it. Preach the Gospel. She'll defend herself. And what's amazing, she will conquer her enemies this way. She will turn their hearts so that they love her. A study of contemporary evangelicalism shows that this bold thought is no longer believed. It sounds well enough in the old hymns, but to actually believe it and apply it would be considered naive, to say the least. Many of the model churches of the day look more like six flags over Jesus than a ship of Zion. They not only offer the gospel, 
but so many other attractants that the gospel becomes difficult, if not impossible to find. Power no longer resides in the simple message, but in bold leadership, cutting edge strategies, cultural sensitivity, and the ability to morph the church into whatever culture dictates. As our world becomes increasingly irreligious and anti-Christian, evangelicalism is running aimlessly to find a remedy. We carefully study the fads and fashions of the culture and then make the necessary changes in the gospel in order to keep it relevant. When our culture no longer desires what we have, we give them what they want. When it draws a crowd of carnal men, we write how-to books that lay the strategy out for the rest to follow. However, we fail to see that we are not making the gospel relevant. We are only catering to a godless culture in order to keep it within our walls. In the end, the gospel is gone. God is not honored and the culture goes to hell. The church needs men. The church needs men who will stand before the opposing masses with nothing to help them or defend them except the gospel and the God who has promised to work through it. How cumbersome was Saul's armor to David and how ridiculous did David appear when he wore it. His agility and strength were sapped by the sheer weight of it. Yet he made the crucial decision to put it off and to face the giant with nothing more than the name of the Lord. Likewise, we must refuse Saul's armor and weaponry and go to battle with nothing more than the smooth stones of the gospel. We must make the crucial decision to throw off the props, strategies, and clever techniques of modern-day evangelicalism and face the twin giants of unbelief and skepticism with open Bibles and a clear, uncompromising message of Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. Then we shall see the power of God manifested in the genuine conversion of even the greatest sinners. For there is nothing too difficult for the Lord. For more information about Grace Family Baptist Church or the topics discussed during the 2010 Simple Reformanda Conference, please visit our church website at gracefamilybaptist.net.